0: Well, if we are honest, life is often confusing. So many things don't make sense. So many things don't go the way that we think they should. Uh, incredible injustices happen. Some of you know this in your own lives. We can see this as we look, read the news and look across the world and the injustices and oppression, excruciating hardships and suffering come to us and we don't understand why. We lose our loved ones. Evil people often get away with evil and find success and happiness. Our bodies break down, relationships break down. Good things never seem to last all that long. In addition to this, we often find life have this maddening monotony to it. It just, things just continue on as they always have and we wonder what the point is. Uh, We long for something exciting, for something new, for something satisfying, but we never seem to be able to fully grasp that thing. If we're honest, this is what our experience of life is often like. And it's not very hard to realize that we're not alone, that this seems to be the experience of everyone, at least some of the time. Um, And you can see this, for example, in so much art and expression that we have in the world, from music to, to movies to books, poems. In popular music, you basically have multiple genres of music dedicated to expressing, expressing that life is frustrating. I mean, country music comes to mind first. But like heavy metal, grunge, the 2000s band, Linkin Park, first time ever quoting Linkin Park in a sermon. They sang, one thing I don't know why, it doesn't even matter how hard you try. I tried so hard and I got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. To go back a few decades, Pink Floyd, apparently um, in Britain, they feel, feel the same. They wrote, run, rabbit, run, dig that hole, forget the sun, and when at last the work is done, don't sit down, it's time to dig another one. For long you live and high you fly, but only if you ride the tide, and balanced on the biggest wave, you race toward an early grave. If you think about movies, Movies often do the same thing. They, they lead us into to thinking about and dwelling on and reflecting on the frustrations and the tensions of life, uh, whether that's through broken relationships, unfulfilled dreams, or, or violence. But often, perhaps more often, movies do something different they give us an alternate reality where we can experience even if briefly a satisfying life right movies allow us to for an hour and a half 2 hours to enter into this alternate reality where things seem to make sense the endings are happy the boy gets the girl the bad guy gets justice the team with the the humble coach wins The girl who, the nerdy looking girl who is ignored by everyone turns out to be beautiful in the end and is well loved happily ever after. In other words, art tends to help us either be honest but hopeless, as in grunge and country music, or hopeful but dishonest. And, of course, this is not just art. These are the two ways we often respond to life. Right? Either we acknowledge the vanity and the frustration and the meaninglessness of life, and we just sit in it and wallow in self-despair and pity and woe is me. Or we try to immerse ourselves again and again in these alternate realities where we don't have to really face reality. And we just distract ourselves, keep ourselves busy, and just find satisfaction temporarily in a million different experiences. And we're not immune from this in the church, right? Like we do a kind of vaguely Christianized version of this. We put on our smiling faces. We put on our Sunday clothes. We try to ignore the complexities and the questions of life. We use a bunch of platitudes and pithy sayings to to pretend that we're optimistic and then we just entertain ourselves with what we say are other good things, family and, and work and church and experiences. But what the Bible does and what Ecclesiastes especially does is present us with a third way. One that is neither despairing nor naively optimistic one that neither ignores the complexities and the frustrations and the questions of life nor sees them as the end of the story or the final word. As we get into Ecclesiastes here, and for those of you that have read Ecclesiastes before, you realize very quickly that there's no sugarcoating things, right? There's no masquerading, no putting on Sunday clothes and smiling faces and whitewashing life as it really is. Uh, Ecclesiastes is uncomfortably at times, honest about what life is often like. The unfairness, the injustice, the maddening monotony. And it doesn't really give us quick, easy answers. But as you read on, you find that there is hope, that there is purpose, there is meaning, there is beauty, and there is joy, not by doing an end around these things and ignoring them, but by going through them. In this life, in the face of life as it actually is, there is hope and purpose and joy and beauty. So we're going to get into this today. We're going to cover the first 11 verses, um, and these are really set up as an introduction to the book as a whole and, and its themes and where it goes. So let's begin in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on uh, author and date and context, um, because for a book like Ecclesiastes, they don't much affect how we read it. But also, we we actually don't know with much certainty these things. The book is technically anonymous. It doesn't tell us who, there's no name attached to it. Um, however, it's often been thought, it's long been thought throughout history to be written by King Solomon. Um, This is because it speaks of its author right here, as we see, as the son of David, king in Jerusalem, which would apply to King Solomon. It also, um, we learn that the author is exceedingly wise, and he has a very prosperous reign, and those two would apply to King Solomon. However, none of these are conclusive for Solomon, so many now think that it was uh, somebody else, perhaps later in history, or some think that somebody was writing as if it was Solomon, which was a common practice in that day. Either way, we aren't told exactly who wrote it. God didn't see fit to tell us exactly who wrote it, so we will just speak of the author as we go through. And the author jumps right in. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Or if you're reading the NIV, it says meaningless, meaningless. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this word is extremely important to the book. You find it strategically here at the beginning, strategically at the end of the book, and then all throughout. It's a word that literally means vapor or breath. Vapor or breath. Uh, But it seems to have more of a a figurative uh, meaning here. So a couple ideas seem to be intended. First, like a vapor, life is gone before we know it. Our lives come and then they go and they're short and life passes us by like a breath. It's here and then it's not. Secondly, like a vapor, we can't contain or grasp all that we want in life. As the author goes on to explain in, later in chapter 1, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. A striving after the wind. So if you try to find satisfaction, lasting significance, meaning in life, it will feel something like trying to harness and grasp, and contain the wind. It'll elude you. No matter how tight you grasp your hands around it, it will slip out. One commentator puts it like this. It should be up on the screen here. All life is vanity in this sense, that it, it is unable to give us the key to itself. The, the book, that is Ecclesiastes, is the record of a search for the key to life. It is an endeavor to give a meaning to life, to see it as a whole, and there is no key under the sun. Life has lost the key to itself. And so you go, as you go on through Ecclesiastes, you find the author giving himself intentionally to all of these things, attempting to find this key to life. So living wisely, giving himself to pleasure and self-indulgence, wealth, sex, work, accomplishments, and in the end, he repeats the refrain, all is vanity, a chasing after the wind. And this leads to and makes sense of the question posed in verse 3. In essence, it asks, what is the point of life? We toil about, we give ourselves to all of these things, we work hard, we, we also seek all of these experiences and try to satisfy ourselves, but what for? What are we even doing here? What's the point. And this is, of course, immensely relevant, right? This is what everyone is asking. These are questions we are all trying to find an answer to in a million ways. When we finally get a moment to pause and, and look back and reflect on our lives or look forward and ask, what are, where are we going? What are we doing? We ask these questions. What's the point? What really am I accomplishing? We go through our routines of work and play and school and parenting and vacations and keeping our schedules busy, but what are we actually accomplishing? Now, this is Ecclesiastes, and the answer doesn't come for a while. The author continues to dig into this feeling that life is despairing. And so he continues on in, in chapter 1 here to give three evidences, three proofs that this is the case. So let's look at verse 4, and then we're going to jump to verse 11. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. There is no remembrance of former things, no remembrance, or, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So the first evidence that life is vain is the shortness of life. We are like a vapor. As we read in James recently, you are a mist that appears for a little while time and then vanishes. And actually, the Bible elsewhere tells us that it's wise to, to reflect on that. To not pretend that that's not the case. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We try our best to not think about death. To not think about this fact that we are like a mist a vapor we try to forget that and we try to fully live in the moment and experience some satisfaction here and now but in light of death in light of the fact that our lives are like a mist what is the point of all our labor and toil and accomplishments we perhaps work hard for 30 40 50 years we we build a business we start a church You move into ever bigger and nicer homes. You make a name for yourself. You raise a family. But again, in light of impending death that we know not when it comes, what is the purpose of it all? Now, before jumping to a yes, but, and giving a good Christian answer, maybe a good Christian answer, allow yourself to sit here. Whatever good Christian answer we give to that has to be one that walks through and accepts the reality of death and the feeling, the sense that we have associated with that and that there is frustration all around us rather than doing what we do so well and our culture does so well and just ignore that fact. And so one of the lessons for us as we go through this is that there is wisdom in sitting in this, in acknowledging the sense, the feeling that life is meaningless, vain, frustrating, and weary. In other words, something is not right. Something is not right here. We, we don't feel fully at home. We don't feel settled. We don't feel fully satisfied. We don't feel at peace, at least, for not, at least not for long. And this is biblical to acknowledge. The author goes on and gives us a second evidence for the vanity of life. And this is the maddening monotony to life. So look at verses 5 through 7, and then we'll jump down to 9. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What has been and is what will be, this is down to 9, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already, it has been already. In the ages before us. Now, there is a sense in which these natural processes of the wind and the and the water and the sun and the moon are incredible and valuable and point us to the goodness of God, right? But from another viewpoint, they're a picture of monotony, of toil and toil and toil with no satisfying end. The world just continues on as it always has. Seasons come, seasons go, and if you dwell on it for too long, it's kind of like the ticking of a clock, and it starts to drive you mad. You can, I mean, you can think about this in so many different ways. I I think of farming or like fish, commercial fishing, where you go through these seasons of putting in so much work to get a harvest or get a crop or to get a, a yield of fish to to sustain the appetites of hundreds, millions of people. And you find some satisfaction in that. And then as soon as you know it, as soon as the season's over, people are still hungry. You have to start a new season again. And you just continue on and on and on. And there's brief satisfaction in it, but there's also this maddening monotony to it that you never reach an end. And then the other part of this that we see is that there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, newness or progress is one of the highest values of our, of our world, right? We all long for something new, for something exciting. To make some progress as we see it is satisfying. And so we plan vacations and experiences to break up the monotony of our life. We, plan, we go out to eat because that breaks up the, the sameness of eating at home. We watch movies and we follow sports teams and we listen to music and play video games or read books to put ourselves in something new, something that is exciting, some story that seems more worthwhile than our lives. But we soon realize there is nothing new, at least not in the sense, the satisfying sense that we are looking for. If you stay on vacation endlessly, it's no longer vacation, right? You just moved. <laughs> if you eat out every meal, it, it's not that exciting anymore. The movies end, the lights come on, and we have to enter back into reality. I mean, if perhaps you have thought that sometimes as you're feeling weighed down by the monotony of life, that perhaps perhaps a bad event would be more satisfying in some sense than just sameness. Like, if something would just shake us out of this, give us something to, to feel, something new, some change, would that be better than sameness? And then that bad event comes, and we want the sameness back, and nothing is satisfying. And all this leads to the third and culminating evidence for the vanity of life, and that is the elusive satisfaction of life. So look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, I don't think the author had social media in mind when he was writing this, But for those of you on social media, you know the eye is not satisfied with seeing. No matter how many times you log on and check your feed or your likes and shares and all of this, you are not satisfied. For those of you that follow the news, the eye is not satisfied with keeping up on the news. For those of you that follow sports teams or listen to music or podcasts, we know that the, neither the eyes nor the ears are ever satisfied by what they take in. Right? We, we know this to be true. We, we log on, we check our notifications, we check the scores, and we spe- expect some sort of satisfaction, and it lasts maybe three seconds, and then it's gone. And then we n- need it again. It's like a hit from a drug. And of course, all of these media and social media companies know this fully, right? And it drives their business models. Or perhaps we have a new experience of life, or we enter into a new season of life. Marriage, parenting, move to a new community, find a new church, and it's so great and so much better than life before, but the newness wears off, excitement wanes, and monotony sets in. There's this great quote from Madonna from a Vanity Fair article in 1991 where she is a amazingly honest about this. She says, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And it's not just Madonna. We are all struggling to prove that we are somebody, to prove that our lives are not meaningless and vain, that there is some significance and lasting purpose to our lives. We set these goals in life for parenting, financial situation, starting a business, planting a church. If we could just get to this point, if our lives could just look like this, and then we get there, and the satisfaction and the peace that we thought would be ours, we find to be elusive and short-lived. There's always something new to worry about. There's always some new goal that you feel like you have to reach to, Turns out the key to life is not a new home, a new spouse, a spouse in the first place, graduation from high school or college, a promotion, a raise, a better schedule, a winning football team, a baseball team that can make the playoffs after 20 years. Turns out that when we think we've figured life out, you know? You found this perfect equilibrium where between life and between family and, and work and church and leisure and whatever else you do, it never lasts. Life is still wearisome, exhausting, and frustrating, and a grasping after the wind. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is inviting us to acknowledge that. To, not, to no longer pretend that that's not the case. But to sit in that. So, what do we do with that? Is the point of Ecclesiastes that we all become pessimists? Some of that, for some of you, that would be no problem. You'd be all fine with that. I, I'm more in that camp. No, we. How are we to interpret this? We believe the Bible is God's word, fully true. How are we to understand this? It is true that life in this world is wearisome, often unhappy, appears to be vain and purposeless. Um, what we have here is an honest and poetic musing on what life is really like for both believers and unbelievers. Right? This is not just an atheistic view of life. This is what life feels like. But that is not the end of the story. That is not as... Ecclesiastes goes on to say, the end of the matter. There is more to consider. And so I think one helpful way to to read through Ecclesiastes is as you read, think about, consider that every word has an asterisk asterisk next to it. And down at the bottom it says, yes, but keep on reading. Keep on reading all the way to the end. And as you do, here is what you find. Let me give you three things you find that fill out the picture and begin to give the key to life. Real quickly, first, God is sovereign over all of life and so rest in him. Um, You find this throughout the book, but one example is in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. So, we, we have this sense that there is meaning and that there is purpose in life, and we long for it. Eternity is in our hearts. But we don't see all of the, the lines filled in, we don't see how everything makes sense. But God does. God is making everything beautiful in its time. He has good purpose and wise purposes to all that he does from beginning to end. Which means that we can trust him. Which means that th- that's what God is doing. That's partly why we have these unfulfilled longings, is it so that we have to trust. Uh, one commentator says this, The Christian answer is that the universe does make sense. There is a plan and a purpose that has its center and its climax in Christ. But not even to Christians has it been given to comprehend the plan in total. The Christian attitude then, so that leads to one of faith and confidence. The Christian says, I know that all these things must play their part in God's total plan. I long to know what the plan is and to see it as a whole, and I shall always go on trying to see it. But in the meantime, I will live my life one day at a time, believing that in the common round of life, I am doing the will of God. I will be content with what God gives me and take my life from the hand of God. Secondly, and related to this, what we find in Ecclesiastes is that life is a gift from God, and so rejoice in the good things he gives. If you think about the kid at Christmas... Who feels that he is or she is entitled to the greatest and most expensive gifts? It is inevitable that that kid will be disappointed and feel let down and probably a bit ungrateful. In, in contrast, there is the kid at Christmas who sees every gift as an undeserved gift, and that kid will find joy in the smallest of things. Likewise, as long as we demand that something or someone give us lasting significance and satisfaction, we will find joy elusive. But when we realize that nothing our eyes see or our ears hear in this life is meant to be an end in itself, is meant to be a God, that life is fallen and broken, that we are not meant to be in control, that we can trust God with all that we don't understand, and that experiencing disappointment and frustration is actually part of the key, understanding the key to life, we can find joy in life. We can take everything as a gift from God. The things we don't understand and the things that are hard, we know God still has a good purpose for And we can receive every good thing with joy. And then third and finally, God will bring perfect justice and vindication. And so live for Him no matter what the results. God will bring perfect justice and vindication. And so live for Him no matter what the results. And I'll turn you to the last words um, in Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One of the glorious implications of a final judgment is that it makes all that we do meaningful, right? If there is no final judging between right and wrong, if it doesn't really matter in the end what you do or how you live, if the evil person will get away with all their evil, if the good person will have no vindication for their lives, then life really is vain and meaningless. And so continually throughout Ecclesiastes, we are pointed back to this reality that there is a day of judging coming. And so when we come up against this sense that life is all vain and meaningless, one of the things we have to do is remember the end, to live in light of the end, which is the opposite of what so much of what we and our culture does is just live in the moment and don't, don't think about five minutes from now. Don't think about what the future brings. No, the Bible says to live in light of the end. The moment doesn't justify the end no matter how great your experience is. The end justifies the moment. In other words, fearing God, loving God, Enjoying God, following God, will be worth it in the end. God's people will be vindicated, no matter how hard and seemingly pointless and vain it may seem now. As Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing, not at all worth comparing. Like, don't even begin to make some comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what this should do, what this reality of judgment should do is not just drive us to be the best we can, do what's right, and then hope for, hope for the best, hope that God, you know, has a lenient curve. No, but what it should do is drive us to, to seek God's mercy. Thankfully, we can do more than just do our best and hope things turn out in the end. No, we can have confidence that God will be merciful. In fact, as we read in in our book today, and as Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible reminds us, there is no one righteous, not one. And so just as Ecclesiastes teaches us to despair of finding satisfaction and significance within ourselves, in our own strength, the Bible teaches us to despair of finding salvation and security within ourselves and within our own strength. Our hope is in Christ alone, in God's work for us in Christ, given for our sins. God will vindicate the righteous in Christ, that is those who cling to and boast in and rest in Christ. We have so much more to cover in Ecclesiastes, but we're going to stop here for today. I am excited to continue through this, and I hope, as it has for me, um, just reiterates and reaffirms the, the truth and the relevance of God's Word. Let's pray.